Greetings and welcome to A History of Maryland. This is part three of our first episode, Lie Back and Think of Crab Cakes, the final installment of our grand trilogy, where we paint the political backdrop of England during the reign of King James via the political career of Maryland's principal architect and founder, Sir George Calvert. Today we will finally surf the last great wave of his career on the slippery boogie board of foreign policy known to history as the Spanish Match. And after a spectacular wipeout, our protagonist will blow the metaphorical salt water from his nose, shake the sand from his trunks, and look for a new beginning, one that lays far across the ocean to the west. But first, it is customary in historical podcasts to take a bit of time in the beginning of an episode to go back and address any factual mistakes you might have made in an earlier podcast. Usually, this comes at the behest of an astute and attentive fact-checking listener. But no one listens to this podcast, so I haven't really gotten any yet. But I did discover an issue myself, which I wanted to rectify. And I figured it would be good practice for something that I will definitely need to be doing a lot of in the future. Way back at the beginning, in part one of episode one, I invited you all to board my magical rocket ship so that we might blast off to the year 1602 CE, or AD, whichever you like. I hate the culture war. I am Switzerland. I ask you to prepare yourself for the journey by, among other things, strapping on your codpiece. To my horror, I have discovered that by 1602, the codpiece was about 10 or 15 years out of fashion. That's not even enough time for it to come back as a hip retro fashion. In short, you would have looked ridiculous in a codpiece, especially you ladies, and I apologize. From now on, just imagine yourself in something casual and timeless. So, strap on your most comfortable pair of Crocs and slip into your snuggest fitting romper, and join me once again as we blast off to England circa late uh, 1612-ish. We last left George Calvert just after the death of his patron Robert Cecil, head down and nose to the grindstone, trying to make himself useful to the king in any capacity he could, all while trying to survive the political shuffle of the pack as a series of James's favorites filled the vacuum left by Cecil. One of his primary functions seems to have been handling the correspondence with the Spanish embassy. This job would put him in a perfect position to become an essential instrument in probably the most pressing foreign policy issue of the day, the Spanish match. And Calvert's rise and fall in court would hinge on the success of the match. So what was the Spanish match? Why did James like the idea so much? And why did almost everyone else in England hate the idea? The Spanish match was a proposed marriage between James I's son, Charles, the current Prince of Wales and future King Charles I, to the Infanta, or the Princess of Spain, Maria Anna, the daughter of King Philip III. James pursued this political marriage for years, despite massive popular opposition. Why? Back in Part 1, I mentioned how James' ascent to the English throne had the prospect of hitting the reboot button on years of war in Ireland and with Spain. Within about a year, he'd made good on that reboot. The rebels in Ireland came to terms within a few days of Elizabeth's death, and after 19 years of war, peace was signed with the Spanish in 1604. 
Also, back in part one, I mentioned the philosophical arguments between absolutists and parliamentarians. And if it isn't obvious, James is definitely on the absolutist side of this argument. And as such, he desired, above all else, peace, lasting peace. That might seem counterintuitive with so many historical examples of autocratic despots perpetually waging war to keep and expand their own power. But his situation was tricky. He was broke, and he ruled a kingdom in where he could only raise taxes by calling a parliament. But parliament could attach all sorts of limits and stipulations on that money that could curb his power permanently. He needed to stay out of expensive wars and to find independent sources of income so he could consolidate his own power at home without having to rely on parliament. With that in mind, the Spanish match was potentially the perfect solution for James. A royal marriage with the most likely enemy who also happened to be the Habsburgs, the most powerful dynasty in the world, was a good way to short-circuit an expensive war before it could even happen. It was a good way to keep the cost of military upkeep down. Also, there was the Spanish Infanta's dowry to consider. A dowry is the traditional money or property the bride's family sends along to keep the daughter in good stead and help seal the deal. When that daughter is coming from the most powerful dynasty in the world, that would be a handsome chunk of change. All money which James, not Parliament, would be holding the purse strings to. So this is the core logic behind the Spanish match. Supporters of this policy would become known generally as the Spanish Party. And George Calvert was not only a supporter, he'd become the actual functional conduit between the King, the Spanish Party, and the Spanish Ambassador. Speaking of the Spanish Ambassador, it's 1613. Enter the Villain. Stage right. His name is... Um, honey, can you help me pronounce this? Diego Sarmiento de Acuña. Yeah, we're just going to call him Count Gondomar. He's smart, fierce, charismatic, and effective. But to upstanding English Protestants, he's basically snidely whiplash. The Spanish match was wildly unpopular in England. They'd been at war with Spain for 19 years. That's like a whole generation. And Habsburg Spain was essentially the protector of the faith for the heathen Catholics. They were the preeminent military superpower who were involved all over Europe trying to squash Protestantism wherever it reared its head. Just try to imagine the United States at the height of the Cold War and the Red Scare. A new president is elected, and halfway through his first year in office, he and his cabinet suddenly slam foreign policy into reverse and try to create a formal alliance with the Soviet Union. The American people are suddenly expected to look the other way while the USSR backed communist revolutions in democratic countries. American socialists and communists, who have been thoroughly demonized for years, suddenly appear to have a powerful lobby in Washington. Most galling of all, America would flagrantly change its own policies so as not to offend Russia and disrupt any chance of sealing the alliance. This is what it was like. The courtship between England and Spain would go on for years, like a decade or more, with England bending over for the Spanish at every turn, all to keep the peace and keep the prospect of the royal marriage alive, while Calvert, Gondomar, and the kings of each nation did a slow, monotonous, diplomatic dance towards sealing the deal. All the while, the English people and Protestant patriots in Parliament grew more and more outraged by each humiliating turn of events. One such flashpoint was the fate of Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh was a rock star back in the Elizabethan times. 
when he wasn't sailing around looking for the lost city of gold, he was dressing up in the height of fashion, chatting up the ladies and writing love poetry. When he wasn't trying to found the colony of Roanoke, he was massacring Catholic prisoners of war in Ireland, fighting off the Spanish Armada, and flirting with the Queen. We're talking about the first guy to make smoking cool. So the people loved him. James, not so much. And within a few months of James coming to power in 1603, Raleigh was on trial for treason after being accused of complicity in a plot against the king. Raleigh would be found guilty, but after putting on such a great public show during his defense, the executioner's acts would be suspended for the time being. Instead, Raleigh would be imprisoned in the Tower of London for about 13 years. In 1617, Raleigh, who was in his early 60s at this point, was given permission to search once again for El Dorado, the lost city of gold. Thought to exist in what he called the Empire of Guiana, an area of South America we'd call Eastern Venezuela today. But this permission came with explicit instructions not to get into any altercations with the Spanish, despite this being, you know, Spanish territory. It was just as much of a disaster waiting to happen as it sounds like. The Spanish had plenty of priors with the old privateer. They probably knew he was coming and were just waiting to pounce. There was an inevitable melee between the Spanish and the English near the Orinoco River. And despite Raleigh's specific orders not to, part of his expedition destroyed and looted a Spanish settlement there. He was clapped in irons upon his return. And Count Gondomar demanded James go through with the suspended death sentence on Raleigh. And since James didn't want to screw up any of his son's potential wedding arrangements... Raleigh gets the chop. Though Sir Walter, frickin' rock star to the end, went out like a champ. He waved off proposed escape attempts, and even joked around a bit with the executioner, telling the X-Men to get on with it. Raleigh's last words being, Strike, man! Strike! Now, according to at least one source, Calvert would have some personal involvement in this whole affair. There's a tantalizing little blurb in Terra Mariae, a uh, book written in 1867 by Edward D. Neal that I just have to share. Quote, Under the malign influence of Gondomar, the Spanish ambassador, the king ordered the arrest of Sir Walter Raleigh in July 1618 and disgraced England by beheading him three months afterward in the old palace yard. It is with pain that we read of Calvert's intimacy with the Spaniard, of his visits to the gallant navigator in prison, and of his calling at his house and taking therefrom his sea charts, a manuscript on the art of war, and another containing an account of all the seaports in the world." Unquote. Wait, is this saying that our Sir George Calvert stole all of these Sir Walter Raleigh's priceless maps and charts of the New World from his house while Raleigh was banged up in the tower awaiting death? If it's true, Calvert was probably just working as a bagman for King James. We could also just have the timing off a little bit. During Raleigh's earlier stint in the tower, he had all kinds of people visit him. It wasn't like he was in a dungeon, it was more like a studio apartment that he was on house arrest in. But it'd be nice if I could find some corroboration anywhere else for it. I can't, unfortunately, but I'm still going to report it. I might even entertain the completely baseless and salacious speculation that a few of those maps and charts made it into Calvert's personal collection, you know, for future use. Seriously, though, if anyone knows anything more about this dark chapter between Calvert and Raleigh, uh, hook me up. I would love to know more. Meanwhile, on the European continent, things were about to get a lot more complicated for James, George, and the rest of the Spanish party, thanks to the king's son-in-law. 
James's daughter, Elizabeth Stuart, had been married off in 1613 to Frederick V of the Palatinate, who ruled a few slices of land in the Holy Roman Empire, located in what would be Germany today. While Fred and Liz were a great love match, the fiscal and political benefits of the marriage turned out to be almost entirely negative for James. The couple were so poor, Elizabeth had to pawn some of her own jewelry to keep up appearances and buy requisite gifts for her courtiers. And incidentally, it was George Calvert's job to head over there in 1615 and give her the news that her dad was partial to those jewels and pretty miffed about her selling them. And if James was miffed at his choice of son-in-law then, he only had to wait till 1619 to completely lose his mind. And that year, Protestants in the Kingdom of Bohemia, today's Czech Republic, revolted against their Catholic Habsburg king, and they offered the crown of Bohemia instead to Frederick V. And despite James's specific instructions to his son-in-law, Don't you do it, laddie! Well, wouldn't you know it, Frederick V just accepted that Bohemian crown anyway. Because nobody tells Freddie V what to do. Freddie V does what he wants. Not only would this put James in it up to his neck with the Spanish Habsburgs he had spent years trying to work out a royal marriage with, it will set off the political game of mousetrap that turns a rebellion in Bohemia into the Thirty Years' War, a titanic religious conflict that will shred Germany to bits for decades and suck in most of the other neighboring powers at one point or another. James was desperate to stay out of the mess, and he wouldn't, and he really couldn't, lend any military support. Plus, he told that jackass not to take the crown. He redoubled his efforts on the Spanish match to try and work things out diplomatically for his daughter's sake. But in Germany, Catholic armies just steamrolled Frederick right out of Bohemia and the Palatinate. James's daughter and her family were now exiles hiding out in the Netherlands. They'll go down in history as the Winter King and the Winter Queen because of their short duration of rule in Bohemia. And as Frederick V lay dying of an infection in 1632, still trying to get his lands back, I wonder if he thought about good advice left unheeded. Don't you do it, laddie. Do it, laddie. Do it, laddie. Back in England, Catholic Habsburg militancy against Protestants in Germany throws kerosene onto the fire of public outrage against James and the Spanish match. Gondomar was being threatened in the streets, and James was promising public whippings for anyone engaged in such seditious behavior. So as far as the public knew of George Calvert, he probably wasn't very popular right now due to his connection with Gondomar and the Spanish party. But he was quite popular with King James. And it's during this period that Calvert reaches the height of his political career. He was entrusted with a slew of diplomatic visits to foreign courts, including that one to the Palatinate to deliver James's scolding to his daughter. Other ambassadors and dignitaries would note in personal commentaries of Calvert's astuteness and his discretion in diplomatic matters. He appears to have had something of a silver tongue in many languages. With the patience to play the long game and the patriotic fervor to stay focused on what he saw as the best course of action for his country. In 1617, he would be knighted, so we can all call him Sir George Calvert after this year. He'll also begin accruing the real source of lasting wealth and power, land, with estates in Yorkshire, Ireland, and even in Newfoundland. And I'll get more detailed about all this in the next episode when it really begins to come into play. In 1619, the same year that Frederick V is setting off a time bomb in Germany, George Calvert is appointed as Secretary of State. To everyone's surprise, especially George's. But it's really a different office than when the all-powerful Robert Cecil held sway. 
Because the real power at court at this point is a guy named George Villiers. James's favorite, and according to some, James's lover. Who we'll just call the Duke of Buckingham. Even though he technically won't have that title until 1623, it's just easier and less confusing to call him Buckingham. Buckingham was a handsome playboy who displayed a consistent recklessness and arrogance that would wreak havoc upon foreign and domestic affairs for years to come. Despite this, James was completely infatuated, and Buckingham grew in power daily as he packed the highest offices with friends and accomplices. One such man was Robert Naunton, who would share the office of Secretary of State with Calvert for a while. The division of labor seemed to come down to Naunton getting the prestige of the office and Calvert doing the work. He was literally the Secretary of State. Buckingham's influence being what it was, Calvert naturally came to believe it was Buckingham who had had a hand in landing him the job as secretary. And as customary, Calvert gave Buckingham a gift of a jewel to show his thanks, which Buckingham promptly gave back. I didn't have anything to do with making you the secretary, and I wouldn't pin this jewel on my poodle. Buckingham's attitude towards Calvert could best be described as chilly. And Sir George probably began to have his first inklings about what was really going on here. James valued Calvert's industry and his humility, not his opinions. Even though our Sir George sat at the big boy table of the Privy Council for real this time, not just as a clerk, he still didn't have much sway over the big picture. The more responsibility he was given to be the face and hands of unpopular national policies, the more he was being alienated from the power to actually make it work. This would have disastrous consequences for his political career, and depending on how you look at it, he was really being set up as a fall guy. Meanwhile, Calvert was doing his own networking and trying to play the game as best he could. It's around this time that he would make a political ally out of Sir Thomas Wentworth, the first Earl of Strafford. Wentworth's historical fame is as something of a sacrificial lamb for the royalist cause, being beheaded in 1641 on dubious treason charges, levied by a vengeful parliament just before the outbreak of the English Civil War. But for our narrative, while he's alive and well, he'll be a powerful and influential voice for the Calvert's interests in court, even after George leaves office, even after George dies. Because as we'll see in future episodes, the political fate of Maryland its very existence, and decades of its early history depend heavily on legal wrangling in the courts of England. Calvert and Wentworth will also become close, genuine friends. It's from their personal correspondence that we get some of the best snippets of the true, private George Calvert. You get the sense that in the midst of all this political posturing and the courtly facades, here were two guys that could take the masks off for a while and just be friends even when they wound up on opposite sides of certain political issues and on matters of religion, which they did. There are candid letters back and forth between the two, grumbling about work and reminiscing fondly about the Yorkshire country life. There are heartfelt farewells as Calvert sets sail for the New World, quite possibly to never be seen again. And there's a real touching letter where George consoles Thomas on the death of his wife, an experience George knew all too well about. Calvert comes off in these letters as a thoughtful, spiritual, humble guy who is there to lean on for personal support when the going gets rough, and who won't hesitate to try to give you that tough advice you may not want to hear, but that you need to hear. It's really kind of nice. In 1620, Wentworth would help Calvert land a seat in the House of Commons, representing Yorkshire, just in time for the fateful Parliament of 1621. 
The last thing James ever wanted to have to do was call another parliament. But his son-in-law's failed gambit in Bohemia had left the king in a bit of a political pickle. Frederick V was considered a Protestant hero by many in England, and James was taking a lot of heat for not swooping in to rescue his daughter's honor and for not protecting the Protestant cause in the Holy Roman Empire against the Catholic Habsburg Goliath. Never mind that that was all pie in the sky. James didn't remotely have the money or a true inclination for an intervention on the continent. He was trying to settle it diplomatically. The problem was he couldn't even fake the threat of an armed response to give himself a bargaining chip with the Habsburgs. At least not without a cooperative parliament ponying up the requisite dough for the cause. And, uh, call me cynical, but I also imagine James had some personal debts which needed clearing up too. Either way, he held his nose and summoned a parliament. Unsurprisingly, the Parliament of 1621 would end up becoming an indictment of the Spanish match and James's failures in taking a harsher stance on Catholics at home. Tempers were already flaring thanks to what was going on in Bohemia. And just before Parliament was summoned, James dismissed Robert Naunton, the co-secretary of state, after Naunton had run afoul of the Spanish ambassador Gondomar for his obvious opposition to the Spanish match. And to red-blooded Protestant patriots, this was yet another slap in the face. The Habsburgs are massacring Protestants over in the Holy Roman Empire, and James is sacking someone who's willing to complain about it. Despite being granted a few token subsidies right off the bat, opposition to James and Parliament firmed up quickly. One of the main leaders of this opposition was Sir Edward Coke. Coke had made his political bones as something of a pit bull state prosecutor in cases like the Gunpowder Plot and Raleigh's Treason Trial. But at this point in his career, he was becoming one of the most prominent and obdurate voices for the rights of representative parliament against the arbitrary power of the king. He went on the attack by heading a parliamentary committee against corruption, and he took down the Lord Chancellor, Sir Francis Bacon. Yes, the Sir Francis Bacon, famed writer, philosopher, scientist, subject of conspiracy theories about Shakespeare, and dabbler in just about everything. Unfortunately for Bacon, in the past he had also dabbled in courting with the same women and jobs as Sir Edward Coke, and the two had personal animosity going way back. As for the charges of corruption levied at Bacon, it was mostly stuff that would be considered standard operating procedure for many politicians of the day. But this was politics, and he was a little too convenient of a target to those trying to send a message to an unpopular monarch. The famous polymath owed much of his political fortune to James. For his part, Francis Bacon took the hit for the team and didn't put up much of a fight, and he was stripped of his offices and his titles. James did little to defend his man, apart from popping him out of jail a little sooner than he might have expected. However, when the committee turned its sights on Buckingham, James brought the kibosh down hard on those charges, and the atmosphere between the king and parliament just got uglier. Meanwhile, Calvert played his usual role as royal plant in the commons, only this time in a more direct and nominally authoritative manner. He'd at times be the main go-between, delivering messages to and from the King and Parliament. Though he took a variety of tones, James's message to Parliament was simple and repetitive. You're not here to make demands, you're here to vote me up some money. As you might imagine, this did not endear Calvert to the Parliament. You know, being the King's message boy and one of the key voices of the Spanish party in Parliament, made Calvert into something of a punching bag. And even worse, by the end of the Parliament, he mostly just got ignored. And he received little or no help from his bosses, who not only kept him out of the loop, 
but who often seemed to actively undermine their own cause. First, there was Buckingham, who despite being the king's ace, was busy propping up friends in influential places who were loudly opposed to the Spanish match. This resulted in all sorts of mixed signals that left Calvert guessing what the king's true motives were. Members of Parliament in Buckingham's camp were moving to declare war on Spain and demand that Charles Stuart marry a Protestant. And Calvert was so out in the cold as to what was really going on, he wasn't sure where the call for war had originated. Maybe the king had changed his mind. I don't know. That's a pretty humiliating place to be in when you're supposedly the Secretary of State. And all of this is typical, because the biggest liability for achieving the king's aims in the Parliament of 1621 was the king. First of all, his policy conflicted directly with what he was asking from Parliament. Give me money to act as protector of Protestantism, so that I might make an alliance with its greatest enemy. That's a hard sell even to those MPs who wanted to support the king. And his high-handed adversarial tone towards Parliament throughout the proceedings just seemed to fuel blowback. And when their opposition became more pointed and vocal, he started arresting members of Parliament. They were released fairly quickly, but it was a display of force intended to have a chilling effect on all of this seditious behavior. But mostly the opposite just happened. Coke and the rest of the opposition now spent most of their time and energy drawing up the protestation of 1621, declaring their right to free speech and asserting Parliament as the ancient and righteous check on the king's authority, only to have James reject the protestation, disband the Parliament, and arrest the key opposition leaders. Edward Coke would get nine months in the slammer, but he'd be back to help entrench the political battle lines between the king and the Parliament. James didn't realize it, But he was kindling a fire that, along with the help of eventual events in Scotland, would set the British Isles and Ireland ablaze in about 20 years. George Calvert wouldn't live to see the English Civil Wars, but Cecil Calvert would. And oh boy, would those conflicts make a big old mess for our little old province of Maryland. But that's a story that'll have to wait until the 1640s and 50s. Back in 1621 and 1622, George Calvert was up to his poofy collar in work. On top of his duties in the Parliament, he was now sole Secretary of State. He was also still handling correspondence with the Spanish Embassy, as the negotiations with the Spanish began to reach their crescendo towards the end game. James was away from London frequently, and his health was going downhill. So Calvert ran a lot of tasks for James in London, but was increasingly shut out of what was really going on by distance and by the machinations of Buckingham. Calvert wasn't really the type to go off half-cocked and make any decisions himself, so he spent a lot of his time waiting for instructions. And on top of all this official business, he had his own properties, children, and other private business affairs to maintain. In the middle of all of this pressure and workload, on August 8, 1622, his wife Anne suddenly died. It seems likely that it was a complication with her 11th pregnancy which killed her. Both mother and child were lost, and George would be devastated, and left suddenly in sole care of an enormous brood of children. He barely had any time to take a breath and properly mourn before being hurled back into the maelstrom of court politics. But I think her death lit a fuse that would lead definitively to some agonizing reappraisals Calvert would make about his own life. She was originally buried at their parish church in London, but Calvert would eventually find the time to build her an ornate altar tomb at St. Mary's Church 
and the little town of Hurtingfordbury, which still stands today. They're both Anglican churches, by the way. The tomb is topped by a sculpture of Anne lying in her final repose. It's the only likeness I've seen of her. Her nose is slightly worse for wear. Uh, it's said that vandals took some hacks at it during the English Civil War. But the whole piece is still pretty impressive. Henry M. Miller, director of studies for historic St. Mary's City, took some actual frontal pictures from above Anne's tomb, and I'll be providing a link to his webpage about it, along with some pics on A History of Maryland's Facebook page, so please check them out, it's neat. In 1623, with all of this on Calvert's plate, he was still working desperately to enact the king's will and try to make this whole thing work. But the fate of the Spanish match and his political future was about to finally slip fully out of his control and to be dashed upon the rocks. Maybe it was down to a growing sense of now or never. James's health was on the decline. Events in Europe were marching on inexorably. Buckingham was more and more the true power in the land. And it was Buckingham who had finally forced the issue. Tired of endlessly dancing around in diplomatic circles, Buckingham and Prince Charles came up with a cunning plan. One that might just be crazy enough to work. Together, they were going to assume disguises and sneak into Spain. They'd surprise the Infanta and cut through all the red tape by making their case personally to the princess. She would obviously be won over by Charles's razor wit, rakish good looks, and devil-may-care demeanor, and they'd bring peace to Europe and a big bag of cash back to Papa James. And things would just work out, you know, like they always do. I can only imagine the Duke had been binge-watching romantic comedies when he concocted this escapade, but the plan went ahead. Under the super-secret aliases of Thomas and John Smith, the Duke and the Crown Prince slipped into Spain. Calvert, who'd spent almost a decade on this deal, wasn't even informed about the plan until after they had left the country. And he couldn't even get any first-hand information on how things were going because Buckingham sent his correspondence directly to the new co-secretary of state, Edward Conway, yet another one of Buckingham's appointees. There was some existing correspondence between Calvert and Conway, where Calvert politely and graciously thanks his co-secretary for passing along some tiny tidbit of information from Spain. And he manages to seem outwardly optimistic and upbeat about the prospect of Buckingham's venture. But I can't help feeling the reality for Calvert was something closer to sitting alone in a locked room, staring blankly at the wall for hours, mumbling ever so quietly to himself. How? Why? If you were a fly on the wall, or perhaps the ghost of Christmas past, you might notice a slight twitch and an involuntary shake of his head as Calvert envisions years of work about to come down around him like a controlled demolition. Or maybe not. Charles and Buckingham had been over there for weeks. Maybe they were hammering out the final details on a marriage contract as we speak. You know, it's real easy to jump to all sorts of negative conclusions when you're completely out of the loop and word travels so slow. You gotta stay positive. Things work out in the end. Sure, Buckingham's plan was a little crazy, but you know what? It might just be crazy enough to work. No, it was a total disaster. Lord Digby, the English ambassador on the ground, had no idea they were coming or any time to prepare. There was a new king in Spain, and a lot of the groundwork laid with the previous king was basically nullified. The Infanta herself had no desire to actually marry a Protestant, 
and Charles' conversion to Catholicism was a requisite point for the match to go through. Really, the Spanish had probably just been stringing the English along this entire time, just to keep them out of the war in Europe, and keep them out of the Spanish waters in the New World. So Buckingham and Charles came back empty-handed. But the Duke was able to turn what was in reality a complete fiasco of his creation into a personal political victory. Most people in England were thrilled at the implosion of the Spanish match. They hated the idea. And Buckingham and Charles were able to get the bit between their teeth and get ahead of this whole thing by hopping over to the popular side and playing up just how poorly they'd been treated by the Spaniards and saber-rattling for war against Spain. And it worked. George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, was just amazing at this sort of thing. He could catastrophically destroy the best laid plans and crawl from the wreckage to a more powerful position. And it's genuinely hard to tell sometimes if it's reckless bungling or pure cunning. He seems perfectly capable of both. Just so you know, this won't be the last time he will blow national foreign policy to smithereens, and it won't be the last time the repercussions would affect Calvert directly. Buckingham had not only managed to keep himself from blame for the debacle in Spain, he threw the ambassador Lord Digby under the bus for everything that went wrong, he was able to deftly make himself a favorite of the prince and soon-to-be king, Charles, by bonding together through the adversity of their little road trip and by wrestling effective control of foreign policy from the increasingly feeble hands of James and putting it into Charles's hands. James was the past. Charles was the future. And Buckingham jumped ship effortlessly. At this point, George Calvert was becoming well aware that he was the past, too. The Spanish match was dead. The swing of the political pendulum now went rapidly towards a French match for Charles. Sure, the French were kind of Catholic, too. And sure, they were technically oppressing the Protestants, too. But the French hated the Spanish, too. And that's what was really important to everyone right at this second. Unlike the years of wrangling with Spain over wedding details, the French match happened quickly. And in 1625, Charles would marry Henrietta Maria, the youngest sister of King Louis XIII of France. Henrietta Maria. Maria. Foreshadowing. In the more amenable atmosphere of 1624, James called yet another parliament. This time... Everyone was so stoked about tearing up treaties with the Spanish that it went much smoother than in 1621. Calvert would technically be a part of it, representing Oxford this time, but he'd mostly just sit in the back, act real quiet, and try not to look like he'd been the face of 10 years of failed foreign policy. Really, he seemed to have one foot out of the door already. His efforts turned to trying to extricate himself from office, with his dignity and name intact, before someone made a target or an example out of him and he lost everything. He put the word out on the street that he was ready to sell his office and get out of politics. Now, selling your office was standard procedure. But in Calvert's case, it still depended on the good graces of Buckingham. In an effort to keep the Duke sweet, Calvert presented Buckingham with a gift of a painting by Peter Paul Rubens. It was supposedly a painting of the crucifixion, rumored to be 20 feet tall. It ultimately ended up years later in Queen Henrietta Maria's private chapel, the contents of which, including the Rubens painting, would be destroyed by marauding Protestant parliamentary soldiers in the English Civil War. In February 1625, Calvert was finally able to extricate himself from political office, 
with his dignity intact and about 3,000 pounds jingling in his purse. It was around this same time that we get the first current references to his open conversion to Catholicism. Calvert's conversion to the Roman Church is obviously a seminal moment in the eventual history of Maryland. If the Spanish match had succeeded, he may never have converted, and there certainly would never have been a Maryland. We'd just be North Virginia or something. Ugh. Can you imagine? But why did he do it? When did he do it? Or was he always Catholic and just, you know, keeping it on the DL? This is a little bit of a debate over the years amongst those who have studied George Calvert. Each source has a slightly different take. Early on, I have to admit, I was firmly in the secretly Catholic the whole time camp. But uh, eventually, after reading John D. Krugler's English and Catholic, I got a more nuanced perspective on how things actually worked out. My original stance was based mostly on a stark view of how Catholics and Protestants interacted at this point in England. And it was also based on a complete lack of understanding of religion and spirituality. Because without that faith, I can only really see the utilitarian angle of things. And I couldn't wrap my head around someone choosing to convert themselves into a hated minority. Out of the blue. And his whole family following along with it and sticking to it through thick and thin. To me, it only made sense that he was always Catholic. But of course, it wasn't out of the blue. George had that early Catholic upbringing from his parents. In school and in his political career, he was immersed in Latin language and surrounded by Catholics in his diplomatic work with Spaniards, Frenchmen, Venetians, etc. Not to mention those English Catholics who tended to support the Spanish match because they felt the alliance with Spain would relax or repeal the anti-Catholic penal laws. So from this angle, the facts seem to support the idea that George could have been a Catholic all along. But it's not that simple. George had declared for the Anglican Church in school and throughout his career, over and over again, giving oaths of supremacy and receiving communion in Anglican churches over and over again. In an age of abject paranoia and accusation, no one ever openly doubted Calvert's Protestantism at the time. He worked alongside some of the most rabidly anti-Catholic figures in court, and he was never suspected, while plenty of other people were. Even when he was the voice of the unpopular king and the hated Spanish match in the Parliament of 1621. Even when the Spanish party supporters were being targeted in the Parliament of 1624. It's also worth mentioning that he wasn't on the radar for, with any other Catholics as being one of their own. They really weren't too excited about him becoming Secretary of State, for instance. They had actually preferred the previous guy, Sir Thomas Lake. The first concrete, real-time references to Calvert's conversion were in January and February of 1625. Now you'll find a slew of quotes out there from guys who claim to have known he was a papist all along. Except that without exception, those guys are all saying this well after Calvert comes out of the closet, so to speak. Then there's Calvert's actual personality to consider. He's a careful, prudent, rabidly loyal, and perpetually worried man. This doesn't match up well with secretly being a practicing Catholic right under the nose of the great scourge of the Catholics, Robert Cecil. What matches up much better is a guy who's more concerned with his career than he is with his faith. And when you look at his career as a whole, the common thread isn't in any sort of pro-Catholic agenda or leanings. As part of a committee on policy in Ireland, he actually advised the king to come down hard on Catholics there. The common thread in Calvert's work is doing exactly what King James wanted him to do. He was the king's man through and through.
So what changed? It seems to have been something in those hectic years of 1622 and 1624. I personally subscribe to the theory that his wife's death was a major catalyst. In letters, he suggested her death was a cross to bear and punishment for his sins. Maybe this guilt was based on some sort of internal religious conflict? She may have been a Catholic herself. Some sources claim it, though it's iffy to me just how open she was about it. I think her husband's career would still likely be jeopardized if it were common knowledge. Then again, women were more likely to not renounce their Catholicism. It wasn't uncommon, especially in certain regions like Yorkshire, for husbands to toe the Anglican line and conform to keep their jobs and their property, while the wives and mothers kept to the old church at home. A crazy fact about this whole narrative is that James's wife, Anne of Denmark, was Catholic. It didn't make James popular with Puritans, but it was there. It's really a very complex issue and a very complex time. A Carmelite priest named Father Simon Stock claims to have converted Calvert himself in November of 1624. This may be true. They certainly ran in similar circles and had plenty of collaboration after Calvert's conversion. But as for how much this priest personally had to do with the conversion, that's up for debate. We'll hear more about Simon Stock, and well, he comes off to me as a bit of a talker. Then there's Calvert's career. It's no coincidence he proclaimed his Catholicism as he was on his way out. Some look at it from the angle that his conversion happened first, and it made it morally impossible for him to go on with his lie, and he just had to resign. But that assumes he had the option to stay in power in the first place. He really didn't. He just had the foresight to get out while he could on his own terms before the axe came down. The game was up, and all he had to show for his years of service was his property and his good name. And if he was going to go out, he was going to go out on his terms. His conversion is no bolt out of the blue from any single factor, but rather a slow personal evolution over the last few years of his career, helped along by many factors. And after a plethora of private and public stresses and sorrows, which caused him to step back and take stock of his soul, and hark back to the comfort of that old-time religion. Once he did convert, he was rock-solid in his refusal to take any oaths which might jeopardize his principles. In one example, he returned his charter for some lands in County Longford, Ireland, which had been granted to him by the king in 1622 because it contained religious restrictions. He was ready and willing to walk away from it all before giving an oath, but the king sent him a new charter with the restrictions scribbled out. Because King James wouldn't forget his secretary, and though Calvert's Catholicism excluded him from office in England, James not only kept him on as a member of the Privy Council, he would elevate Sir George Calvert into the Irish peerage as the first Baron of Baltimore. So yes, we can now refer to George Calvert as Lord Baltimore. You know, I honestly haven't been able to figure out how the whole peerage naming thing works. Calvert's lands are in County Longford, which is in central Ireland. The Irish town of Baltimore is way down on the southern coast of Ireland, so I'm, I'm not really sure what that's all about. But anyway, that's the story of Calvert's epic rise and fall from grace in the court of King James. Saying it was a fall from grace is kind of like saying retiring from politics to your $3 million country home is a fall from grace. 
Maybe if your entire sense of identity and happiness is based on that competitive drive to persevere at the highest levels of the political game, maybe then it's a fall from grace. But Calvert isn't one of those people. I think he sufficiently proved that by openly declaring his Catholicism and basically nuking that bridge back to court power. He left with the king's blessing and a shiny new title. And our Sir George is not going to retire to a beach chair drinking rum all day, as I would if I had been declared lord of anything. His subsequent actions may not match up with the man you know so far. Based on the last couple of podcasts, you could be forgiven for believing that George Calvert was little more than a loyal stooge to a wildly unpopular despot. Maybe a nice enough guy personally, but not terribly interesting, and as a mere puppet to events, his place in history is just pure circumstance. I would argue that his open conversion to Catholicism, his deft extrication from court with honor and fortune intact, and the subsequent pursuit of his dreams and ambitions at the risk of everything, prove that there was more to Sir George Calvert than just being a message boy for King James. There's also a whole other side to George Calvert I've been hiding thus far. The rambling, gambling George Calvert. A man who's got the fever. And it all has to do with that other massive dynamic at this point in history. The European discovery and colonization of the New World. Next time on A History of Maryland. The backstory is finally finished. It's time for action. Join us as we climb aboard two vessels, the Ark and the Dove, and sail far to the west to seek out George Calvert's dream of a new nation to be found in the faraway land of Newfoundland? Don't you do it, laddie. Do it, laddie. Oh, it's a rocky road to Maryland, people. And there's going to be a few pit stops on the way. Hear all about it in Episode 2, Avalon.